We read, Lord, how all of heaven was silent for half an hour as they gazed on the wonder of Jesus Christ, risen and exalted, and he alone able to bring all of history to completion. Lord, we pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would move our hearts to similar wonder. And that not only that, Lord, but that you would change our lives, our daily lifestyles, the things that we see as most important in our lives. That you would fill us up with such a sense of you, Lord, that all other things fade into the background. Your word is uh, powerful, Lord potent, able to cut to the very hearts of our souls. Please, Lord, we pray, do your work amongst us this morning. In Christ's name. Amen. We've been studying James's letter to Christians all over the world, as he knew it. We got to chapter 4. And if you have got one, then turn to James chapter 4. Let me read to you from verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not know, even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Though I talk with the tongues of men and of angels and have not money... I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not money, I am nothing. And now abideth faith, hope, and money. These three. But the greatest of these is money. 
It's actually George Orwell's parody of 1 Corinthians 13 from his uh, novel about poverty in London in the 1930s called uh, Keep the Aspidistra Flying, where 1 Corinthians talks about love, you will remember. Orwell substitutes money. And I think, in a sense, it's the credo of many, many people today, isn't it? And many people implicitly accept the uh, doctrine of the, the character played by Danny DeVito in the film Other People's Money. He says, he who has the most when he dies wins. The problem is that living as if money were the essence of life doesn't work. You know, read some of the rest of Orwell's parody in 1 Corinthians. It starts to become clear. Money suffereth long and is kind. Money envieth not. Money vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. That may be true of love, but it is certainly not true of money, is it? And yet the two major political theories which have dominated our world this century have centred precisely around theories of money and property. You know, Marxism, or its more moderate uh, Western cousin socialism, was built on the idea propounded by Karl Marx in the 19th century that says that uh, wealth production should be in the hands of the workers. On the other side, capitalism, classical capitalism at least, uh, follows the, the ideas of an 18th century philosopher called Adam Smith, who said uh, precisely the opposite. He said that people need to be given a free hand to get as rich as they like, and that wealth will naturally trickle down into all society. On both sides of the coin, though, the central concept about how society should work revolves around money. Marxism and classical socialism have, have died out in the last 10 years. The uh, uh, Eastern Communist bloc fell. The British Labour Party famously abandoned Clause 4 that said that the means of production should be in the hands of the workers. Now, new Labour has been born with all its uh, bright smiles and lack of socialist uh, dogma. Capitalism, it seems is triumphant around the world. Most people agree that it is a good mechanism for generating wealth, but more and more people today are warning us that capitalism as an ideology is a disaster. George Orwell pointed that out very clearly, didn't he? In that parody of 1 Corinthians. Now, the 1990s has seen a rising tide of protest, actually, against our obsession with the bottom line on everything. Just to take one example, Charles Handy, who's become something of a guru for businesses these days, asks the question repeatedly in the things that he writes, what's it all for? He points out, actually, how Adam Smith insisted that capitalism would only work if mankind demonstrated what he called sympathy towards others. 
Smith was an optimist, actually. He presumed that we would more or less naturally show sympathy to other people. But we're living in a world where that natural sympathy is, in fact, in short supply. The the gap between rich and poor in Britain is steadily increasing at the moment. Security of employment is decreasing. Working hours for those who have jobs is increasing. Overall, the economy is actually doing pretty well. But that doesn't stop an increasing number of people feeling anxious about society. Charles Handy's own personal experience is actually quite fascinating. He was the son of a quiet, uh, unambitious vicar in Ireland. He says, by the time he was 18, I had resolved never to be poor, never to go to church again, and never to be content with where I stood. So he went off. He was first a a successful oil executive in the Far East. He was then an economist in the city of London, and he then became a professor at the London Business School. But he says his father's funeral changed his life. Because at his father's funeral, he met a great crowd of ordinary people who deeply mourned his father's loss. And he knew he wanted what his father had had more than he wanted wealth or success or fame. Turned his life around. He's not yet a Christian, Charles Handy, but all his books are about trying to realize something of the quality of life of his dead father. The popularity of his books, you know, one book alone has sold over a million The popularity of his books shows me, at least, that people are hungry for that quality of life too. Quality of life which Handy says again and again in his books will not be achieved by unrestrained capitalism. Which brings me to you and me this morning. Sadly, I have to say, I am not convinced that Christians model the lifestyle that Charles Handy and many more like him are searching for, or at least not in any great numbers. I mean, to a certain extent, of course, we are inevitably caught up in the world as everyone else is. We can't stand aside totally and still expect to earn a living. But far too often, I think, we Christians uncritically absorb the assumptions of society in in general and actually become emotionally and practically enmeshed in the very same cage that a large proportion of the world is trying to get out of. Now, I I know a man who is a uh, Christian working for a multinational company. And that, that, uh, the senior management of that company had a seminar which they required their managers to go to on Charles Handy's ideas, on uh, his view about how a humane company should really function. And he said he sat there thinking, they're describing the church as it ought to be. And then he thought, But is the church really like that? 
See, I personally doubt whether companies are ever going to re realise Charles Handy's vision for one very, very important reason. Unlike Handy's father, we lack a clear vision as a society of a God who is in control and a God to whom we will one day have to answer. A God who controls the world by providence and a God who will one day judge the world in justice. Without that, I think, people will always go astray. But you see, the church and individual Christians are not disabled in that way. We have the opportunity, by the, the quality of our lives, to have a powerful and, I think, prophetic influence on the world around us today. Our lifestyle, then, will be a key element of our witness. James is going to show us this morning in this passage why, in fact, belief in the providence of God, the fact that God controls every moment of our lives, and belief in the judgment of God, the fact that one day we will answer to God for everything we do, how those two things should make us profoundly different people. And I would add profoundly more attractive people to the world around. Let's see then what James says about God and money. First of all, he says, from verse 13 of chapter 4 to the end of the chapter, he says, God's providential control of our lives should profoundly affect us. Look at verse 13. Listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Actually, James is describing a pretty typical 20th century person, isn't he? This person's not necessarily rich yet, but they intend to be. You know, I've met so many young people, Christian and non-Christian, who are like this. They know their career path. They'll tell it to you. Today or tomorrow, I will go to this city, I will spend a year there, they say. They know the job that they are going to do, as James put it, carry on business. And they are absolutely confident about the outcome of that. They will make money. James says, you don't even know tomorrow. Let alone next year or the rest of your life. Yes, we fondly think that our lives are as solid as granite, but actually they are as ephemeral and insubstantial as a mist, which is there in the first light of day but has disappeared by mid-morning. Now, this week, I was knocked off my bike. If there had actually been an oncoming car, I was knocked into the other lane. I wouldn't be here today. You think your life is secure, then go and spend a day at the Accident and Emergency Department of the John Radcliffe. It is full of people, some of whom die, who thought they were going to live for years yet. 
Now, James is not criticizing any sort of planning. No, he's not doing that. Rather, he is criticizing the arrogant attitude that says, my life is my own to do exactly what I want with it. Our life is not our own, he says. We live every minute under the sovereign hand of God. Verse uh, uh, 15. Instead, he says, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. It's not an instruction to uh, lace our conversation with the Lord willing or DV. Rather, James is calling us for a profound attitude of heart which says, I am in God's hands. I cannot control the future. He can redirect me. He can thwart me. He can prosper me. He can exalt me or humble me as he sees fit. Everything about my life is under his authority. A person who knows that will never be proud will never be haughty, will never push their own way at all costs, will never despise others, because they know God could rearrange their life in a click of his fingers. I've met a milkman, you know, who uh, earlier on his, in his life was the director of a multinational company. I've met... Uh, homeless alcoholics on the street who were professionals. Man I used to know had a son who was uh, president of the Cambridge Union. This young man was called Hugh Anderson. At 21, Hugh was a nationally respected political activist. Some people were already tipping him as a future Prime Minister. He was dead from cancer before he was 22. He was so famous, even at that age, the Prime Minister and four members of the Cabinet came to his funeral. But such fame, such exalted gifts, did not preserve his life. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes, says James. See, perhaps the greatest danger that there is for those of us who think we are immortal, or at least that we know the span of our life, is that we put off things that we know we should do until later. When I am rich, then I'll be generous with my money. When I have more time, then I will get a, get a prayer life together. When I've worked for that house, then I will spend some time with my family. But you see, our plans rarely work out. Life catches up with us. Good intentions fade. And James says this in verse 17. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. He knows, you see, that people who are, are dogged and dominated by some plan for their life, which they think is absolutely certain, but is actually mythical, he knows that those people get caught up again and again 
in sin. Because they don't do when they know they should the things they should do. Here's a key to the good life, then, says James. Every day, live in such a way that as you put your head down on the pillow and go to sleep, you're at peace with God. Don't think, well, my life plan will get itself into, into uh, action at some point in the future and then I will have peace with God. Every day, we do not know what will happen tomorrow, says James. That single element, I'm convinced, could transform many a Christian life, couldn't it? Now, what is there in your life that you are thinking, I'll do this or that then, I can't do it now? Perhaps it is your prayer life. Perhaps it's some relationship problem that needs to be sorted out. Perhaps you need to, to work at a better pattern of work. Perhaps you need to think through how to use your money better. Of course, for everyone, there are times when we just cannot find the time to pray or to give time to our family or whatever. I remember talking to a retired missionary once and hearing how she was uh, once left as the sole doctor in a missionary hospital and she had to work 18 hours a day, seven days a week for months. And she said all she could do in that uh, time was read a psalm every so often and pray on her feet as she worked. That's life sometimes. James is not criticizing us for that. But that cannot be our chosen lifestyle. We cannot make choices freely that delay the good we know we should do now. God is in control of our lives and he calls us every moment, says James, to be on good terms with me. Let me say again, he's not saying don't make plans. Everyone needs to plan. Rather, he's saying the center of our lives must not be plans. The center of our life must be the simple desire to serve God diligently today. Now, Hugh Anderson, who died when he was 21, had lived his life so passionately, moment by moment, according to his conscience, that at that young age he was able to say, shortly before he died, my life's work is done. I'm ready to meet my Lord. Could you say that today? God took you. Your life's work, if that's the way he wants to, to deal with your life, your life's work is done today? Or are you living as so many of us do, with all sorts of ideas and plans that uh, we're convinced will get sorted out sometime, <coughs> letting ourselves be deflected from serving God today? God's providential control of our lives, says James, means we must live daily under his benign government, not try to deflect what we should do now by some great plan. Secondly, then, in chapter 5, he goes on to uh, a slightly different theme. 
First of all, he was talking about God's providence, but now he talks about God's judgment. God's judgment, he says, should affect our lives too. And at this point as well, at the beginning of chapter 5, he seems to turn his attention away from uh, Christians towards rich non-Christians in his day. He certainly gets much, much more biting in his comments. Listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded, he says. Very dramatic words. Your wealth has rotted, he said. Even indestructible gold, he says, is corroded. He's not describing something that necessarily is going to happen in their lives. He's describing the the fact that their fate before God is so inescapable if they go on in this lifestyle, it is as if that wealth is already history to them, already gone. God's judgment has already happened. And God's judgment is supernatural. Gold does not corrode unless God corrodes it and leaves it behind as we go on into eternity. Everything in the world, he says to these people, will be shouting accusations at you on the last day. The corroded gold and silver, he says, will be doing it. Listen to verse 3. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire, he says. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. The wages that they should have paid to workmen will testify against such people. Look, verse 4, the wages you have failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. And of course, the workmen themselves on the last day will cry out too. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. That uh, uh, phrase, the Lord Almighty, translated there, is an Old Testament term. It used to be translated in the King James, the Lord of hosts. It has the sense that God is the uh, uh, ruler over a great vast army, an angelic army. That army is absolutely unstoppable in its determination to destroy all of evil. And unfortunately, says James, the leader of that army has heard an accusation against you. He must destroy you, he says, if you fit this category. James is not uh, criticizing wealth itself, though. We need to be clear about that. The Bible rejoices in wealth. Now, James is criticizing the hoarding of wealth. He's criticizing injustice towards the poor, that wealthy people find it so easy to perpetrate. He's criticizing an attitude of self-indulgence, that wealth can so easily encourage in us. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence, he says. James is saying, open your eyes to that if you don't know God. Imagine that 
that, that everyone that you have dealt with in your life has a chance to say their piece on the day that you face God on his judgment seat, he's saying. Will you be able to hold up your head with confidence? Or will you look back on your life and realize that you have been duped by the devil himself? Will you realize too late, he says, that your life resembled that of a pig with your head in the trough, frantically consuming as much as you could and not realizing that the twinkle in the diabolical eyes of the farmer as he ladled out the swill to you, was because he was thinking about the rashes of bacon he was going to enjoy. That's what James says, isn't it? You fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Now, our world is full of people whose future is as horrific as that. The gross injustices of James's day may not be so prevalent in the West, but our unconcern for others, our love of wealth and luxury, the frightening way in which one decade's luxuries become the next decade's necessities in our world at the moment, are dangerous symptoms. You know, in the United States, the most wealthy 1% of people own more in to- than the total of the least wealthy 40%. And in Britain, actually, we're, we're catching up with that. All of those statistics, I think, bode ill for so many people on Judgment Day. And Christians will only rescue people from that terrible prospect that James has painted vividly if we prove that we believe passages like this as Christians. If we stand against that. In the 1970s and 80s, there was a very vigorous debate about the extent to which rich people are actually responsible for the, the poverty of others. The famous book was uh, Ron Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And... Uh, It was countered by a number of books, especially one I remember entitled Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. There was quite a a vigorous debate at at, at the time. I think we need to be clear that James is, uh, is not making rich people responsible for all the poverty in the world. He's talking quite specifically, isn't he, about uh, wages that were owed to workmen who had worked for these rich people, how they were specifically denied those wages. He says in uh, verse 6, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Almost certainly they used the judicial process, in fact, to get rid of people who were, proclaim, who were uh, complaining too loudly. It still happens in many countries in this world. It doesn't happen in this country. But nevertheless, I think uh, we, we brush off the accusations of James too quickly sometimes. 
And we need to have hearts that are concerned for those who are poor because thoughtless unconcern can be the same as actions according to Jesus. Now I want to call us as Christians to a simple lifestyle. Not an impoverished one. We don't don't need to beat our breasts unnecessarily and and become uh, absolutely poor to give away all our wealth necessarily. But we do need to live lives which model something different from the world we live in. Why don't we make our car last just a little longer rather than replacing it straight away? that it starts to uh, irritate you with the things that are going wrong? Why don't you uh, choose a cheaper holiday? Give the money that uh, you saved away. Why, Why do you have to buy the biggest house possible? Why not go to the second-hand clothes shop before you go into uh, uh, Marks and Spencers to get your clothes? You know, um, every career move that I've made so far in my life has has, uh, involved a drop in pay. Not quite the normal uh, uh, career path. I've been amazed how on every occasion we have managed to cope. We've not felt impoverished. I realized, in fact, uh, how many things, how many spending habits are, in fact, just habits. They are not absolutely necessary. We live in a world, then, as I said at the beginning, which I am convinced is dissatisfied with the boasting and bragging that goes with those who feel they've mapped out their whole life plan. It is dissatisfied with people who hoard wealth, who live life in luxury and self-indulgence. But it's a world that lacks the resources to change because it's a world that has lost touch with the God whom James describes. And who is going to help that world find him again? That's my question. In in the end, Charles Handy quite explicitly uh, refuses to take the religious uh, option as his solution for the world. I'm absolutely certain that that means that his vision, great though it is, will run into the sand. But you see, Christians live under the hand of a God who is in control of their lives and a God whom they know they will one day face and be judged by. If we are not different, if we are not modelling a difference, the world will continue to go astray. But I tell you, I am absolutely certain that as we model that difference, we will discover the world is clamouring at our doorstep. 
You know, Rabindranath Tagore, who was a Hindu, once said to a Christian leader, on the day when we see Jesus Christ living out his life in you, on that day, we Hindus will flock to your Christ, even as doves flock to their feeding grounds. And it won't be only Hindus, you know. It will be people in vast number. Live lives that acknowledge God's control of your life. Do not put off till tomorrow what you know you should do today and live lives that are vividly aware of God's judgment. If we live lives which are different, which are prophetic for this world, then we will make a difference. I promise you. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, some of us from our earliest years have learned how you control the world. I've learned how we will one day face you in judgment. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that on that day we will be able to say before you, Jesus Christ has taken on his shoulders our sins. But Lord, we would not be presumptuous about that. We would not, Lord, want to load his back the more heavily with our burden. Lord, fill our hearts with such a love of you and such a sense of you that we are able to live different lives. If we are living for some mythical plan of the future, Lord, bring us back to earth and help us to live today. If we are living lives that are obsessed with luxury and wealth, And Lord, show us what you will say to us on the last day and give us repentance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.